Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. They consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. And I should not admit to this on a podcast on a podcast for prosperity. Hmm. Oh, Boston came out podcast. <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Season 10 of She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. This season's theme is Living Legends. We will be talking about ladies who are alive and over 80 years of age who have contributed to the profession and continue to inspire us to this day. Literally Living Legends. Mm -hmm. On today's episode, we're going to learn about Solange Terbet de la Tour founder of the International Union of Women Architects. I'm Norgeri Rivas, excited about a new fridge that I just bought in Houston, Texas. <laughs> Peak adulting. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hi there, I'm Jessica Rogers, stocking up on some beauty projects this weekend, and I'm based out of Miami, Florida. Hey there, I'm Lizzie Rar, and I'm saving up for a rug for my bedroom now that we have wood floors in San Francisco. Yeah. Love it. Love it. All right, quick disclaimer. The three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We are just sharing stories about the information we find. Kind of like how you do with girlfriends, you know? If we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us, send us an email, and we will all continue learning. Let's dive right in. The time, September 8, 1924. The place, Bucharest, Romania. Solange Pauline Eugène Derbet de la Tour was born. I looked into a little bit of history around that time in Romania, and that year was the first time that the country played in the Olympics. And also, in the 1920s, they had some beef with Italy. Mm -hmm. They were ruled by a king, and there was a fascist political party known as the Iron Guard that was becoming popular and would later become a really big deal and join the forces of the Axis powers in World War II, but we're not there yet. Ooh. 
Interesting. And Solange was living through all of this, or at least through most of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot happening in Romania. I will say, as a gymnastics nerd, mm-hmm. I perked up when you said Olympics because Romanian gymnastics was kind of a big deal in the like 70s to 2000s. Think Nadia Comaneci, the first perfect 10. There's a lot there. I won't get into it. But anyway, I'm with you. 1924, Romania. Let's go back to Solange. So, her dad was Maurice Albert Jean Derbert de la Tour, who was born in France. And her mom was Juliette Derbert de la Tour, née Zampirolu. I could not find information on where her mom was from, though Zampirolu is a common last name in Italy. Mm-hmm. Yet... Now we know that somehow life took them to Romania because that's where Solange was born. So there you go. Their names are so long. Yeah, (laughs) they are. (laughs) Wait, so she was Italian but ended up in Romania or we're just wondering about that because her last name was Italian. The mom, I mean. Yeah, yeah. We're definitely just wondering. Okay. I'm just making assumptions because I looked up like where is is San Pirolu? Where's that last name from? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that there's a lot of Sampirolus in Italy. Mm-hmm. So I'm just assuming we're making leaps. Maybe there were Sampirolus in Romania too already. I, I really don't know. Actually, there is evidence that Italians started immigrating to Romania since the 19th century. And during the wars, a lot of them moved around and were displaced. So maybe the mom gotcha. had Italian heritage but was Romanian. Makes sense. Mm. Okay. Good question. So, Solange decided to study architecture, and she got her Bachelor of Architecture degree from the University of Bucharest in 1947. And then, because one degree is not enough, she got a degree in urban planning from the Polytechnical School of Bucharest two years later. Don't stop, can't get enough. Don't stop, can't get enough. Keep on. Gotta catch them all. So, Solange, shortly after graduating, she decided to go to her dad's homeland of France. In 1950, she settled in Paris, opened up her own firm, and started hustling to get projects. But it was not easy. She barely had any money. She was a woman. It was hard to get clients. You know the drill. So, different country, but same issues. What else is new? Yeah, sad to say. (sighs) <sighs> she entered the 1954 competition L'Engement Économique de Première Nécessité. They sought proposals for affordable housing in response to the post-war housing crisis that was occurring in France. The competition was super stiff. There were 97 teams competing, including big-name architects in France. Still! Solange's team provided two of the 13 winning projects. Wow. Way to go, Solange. That's huge. Boom. That's awesome. Uh Uh-huh. Among the winners, Solange was the exception. She was relatively unknown compared to the other big-name architects that won. And also, you guessed it, she was the only woman. Not a surprise, unfortunately. This is giving Myelin vibes, you know, like the unknown designer coming out on top. Mm, true. Even though she had not just one, but two winning designs, 
the French Ministry of Reconstruction and Urbanism refused to give her a prize, mm. using as an excuse that she did not meet the legal requirements to enter the competition because she did not complete military service. And back then, in order to get a public contract, you had to have served in the military. What? Mm. Okay, but then why did they choose her design if they were just going to snatch it back? Mm-hmm. Also, what a weird requirement about having to serve in the military to get a public contract. Yeah. What? Interesting. This also reminds me of our Zaha episode where, like, they liked her design, but once they found out that the designer was a woman or an outsider, they all just, like, lost their marbles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. This seemed like such bull to me. I had so many questions. Number one, were women allowed to join the military at the time? Like, right. was that a non-starter? I looked this up and I found conflicting answers on this, so I still don't know, honestly. Mm. Number two, were men being turned away on the same technicality? Mm. Right. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Hmm? Number three, was she too old to join the military by the time that she arrived in France? Mm. Number four. Man, I had a lot of questions. Yeah. Keep going. (laughs) What's number four? Number four. (laughs) Would she have been allowed to Mm. join even though she was born in Romania? You know? Mm -hmm. Right. Unfortunately, I didn't have the time or resources to find these answers to these questions. I, I tried looking it up really quick, but I couldn't find the answers quick enough. Still, I just know in my bones that this was a silly excuse to keep her out that they would not have put this on other people, you know? Agreed. These are the hurdles that we talk about that face this industry. It's like you take one step forward, two steps back. You get to the goalpost, but they keep moving the goalpost. So, mm, mm -mm. These are all great questions and questions I also had myself. Like, are they not hiring any foreign men either? Like, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, again, like Jessica said, just such a ridiculous rule, which sounds like a cop-out because they just don't want to give the award to a woman. Mm-hmm. But do you think that Solange took this ridiculous discrimination sitting down? She better not have. Mm-hmm. No way. There's no way that her story would end this way. Mm. Of course it doesn't. She said, this is the biggest load of BS in the history of forever, and I'm going to start a hunger strike on the Esplanade de Invalides. Mm-hmm. Her case got traction. Soon, the Esplanade had protest posters. She had people on her side. Like, people came and protested with her. Mm. It was not a good look for the Ministry of Reconstruction and Urbanism. So, they decided to give her the award. <laughs> yes. This is amazing. I love her tenacity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, A hunger strike? Sounds a little intense. But, you know, it got the job done, so. Yeah. I agree. I don't know if I would have gone on a hunger strike. Like, it seems a little extreme to me. Just a little. But I bet that she felt that it was her only avenue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And think about this. There were at least two architecture societies at the time that she could have gone for help to defend her interest. One of them was the Society of Government Qualified Architects. They started accepting women in 1924, 
but between 1924 and 1943, there were less than 10 women who they registered, and all of them were related to men that were already members. Mm. So unless you somehow had an in to this gentleman's club, you weren't getting registered. Sounds about right. Mm. And the other one was the Order of Architects, an organization that Solange was actually a part of. They were dedicated to professional regulations. They allowed women in from their inception. Nice. So women were always allowed to be part of this organization. Um, In 1943, that's when they started. But no woman was in leadership positions until 1970s. So in 1956, when Solange was being totally discriminated against, could she really count on either of these societies to help her? A woman? Mm. Or would they pull the same horse crap? Mm. Yeah, that's tricky. You could bring it up to the society, but maybe they don't want to get into it and basically tell you to stay quiet, right? Like, ugh, I feel for her on that. Mm -hmm. That's tricky. Tricky, tricky. Yeah. It sounds totally understandable on her end because sometimes these organizations, they have this bubble that they only want to focus within instead of at large. That they become too fearful to question or to go against the bigger groups like the one Solange is fighting against. Yeah. But you said that they publicly supported her, which says a lot. That not even these organizations would support one of their own. Also, I don't know. First woman elected in the 1970s. I clocked that, Nojiri. Q major arrow. Yeah. Naturally, Solange did not feel represented or truly welcomed in any of these existing societies and spaces, and she experienced the unequal access to opportunities for women practicing architecture. She knew there was a void, and she became passionate about creating an organization that truly represented women in architecture. Thus, the French Union of Women Architects was born in 1960. And as its first president, she set her sights abroad and started putting together an international network. Yeah. Ooh, I can't wait to see what she does with this group. Yes, I love this. I love this so much. Okay, you got to tell us what happens next. Okay, so France was not the first to have a national society of women in architecture. Other notable prior examples, starting in 1937, the Association of Brazilian Women Engineers and Architects, 1942, the Finnish Union of Women Architects, 1953, the Association of Women Architects in Japan, 1957, the Association of Italian Women Engineers and Architects, and even though this was one year after the French, I'll add it to this list, 1961, Civil Association of Mexican Architects. Glad to hear that there were other countries doing the same thing. It totally makes sense, though. The original organizations weren't going to accept women. And if they did, they wouldn't receive the same privileges as men. Heck, that's why some, if not all, of these groups still exist today. These groups are created to be a space for support. Like a snack. Right. According to the article... Transnational Dialogues About Women Architects, 1960-1967, by Ph.D. Paula Dedeca. All these organizations all over the world had similar objectives. To organize their efforts, to support each other in their careers, to discuss problems related to the profession, to provide a safe space to share ideas, 
and to give each other material, intellectual, and moral support. There you go. Women supporting women. Solange recognized this and wanted to move from the national scale to the international scale. She started reaching out to other organizations, expressing her intent to create friendly ties with them. Just three years after forming the French Union of Women Architects, she organized the first International Congress of Women Architects. There, the attendants agreed to form the International Union of Female Architects, a.k.a. UIFA, for its abbreviation in French. Their agenda included to discuss ideas and solutions regarding the struggle for equal rights of women in the profession and to create a permanent international body to connect and enact change. Amazing. How many countries joined? Well, I'm not sure how many countries joined originally, but as of this century, the UIFA has members from 90 different countries. The same year that she formed the union, the newspaper Le Monde interviewed Solange as a part of an article of women in architecture. Solange told the newspaper that through the UIFA, she aimed to show governments and clients women were serious professionals and to instill confidence in the women themselves. That's right. Let's go. Y'all, they grew strong. (laughs) Between 1963 and the first decade of the 21st century, the UIFA had 16 congresses. Nice. Some of our favorite ladies were part of the union, Mm. such as Menet de Silva, episode 17, Denise Scott Brown, future episode alert, Anna Bofil, and Jane Drew, episode 7. Despite this, it's actually not that easy to find info on this organization. PhD Paula Dedeca has two reasons why she thinks this may be. Number one, because history of women in architecture has been poorly documented and at times purposefully erased. Mm. And number two, because overall our profession tends to favor and glamorize individuals over the achievements of networks and collective associations. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. I do feel that architects get more notice than group organizations do, right? That is true. Definitely. Yep, that's why we have our show. I would like to think that there are a few organizations that are becoming more and more popular today. Well, I guess then from that time. Um, But it could be because the publications that I'm thinking about, they are putting out more and more statements um, and making more and more, like, strong claims. So the two that come to mind, one is um, Parlor. It's a U.K.-based organization that talks about women designers. I mentioned them in last week's episode or a few episodes ago because they did an interview with one of our ladies, but they pulled out reports on pay equity in women. And then there's also in the States, the Architectural Workers United, which is a group that focuses on unionization of architects. And they've becoming more popular with some of the unionization discussions that have come up as of late, like uh, with Snohetta and a few other uh, popular firms. Mm. You know, I don't know enough about any of these. I should look some things up. They're interesting reads. I think you'd like them. Hey, designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? 
I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if, if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers, if you like. <laughs> the official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Turn your architectural designs into stunning, immersive experiences with Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real-time 3D and VR. With Enscape, you will experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly, and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects, designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling in architecture. Dive into a new era of design visualization with Enscape. Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. Okay, so while Solange was working on the first International Congress of Women Architects, she, of course, invited the existing International Union of Architects. But despite reaching out to them repeatedly, they were a total no-show to the Congress. Mm. Oh, sad. All right, so for a quick background on the International Union of Architects, or UIA for its abbreviation in French, they were founded in 1948, in France, too. So it had been around for more than a decade before Solange came into the scene. It was meant to be a space where architects could come together in matters of diplomacy and objectives that benefited the architectural community globally. Yeah. So this was, from the get-go, a little bit of drama. Mm -hmm. I think there were some people starting a little mess suggesting women were trying to break away from the UIA. Oh. And Solange was like, um, no, no, no. That's not the point at all. I want us to work together. Women architects are still architects. We want to be a part of the UIA too. We can do both. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I can totally see this happening. If you defect or have a slightly different agenda than the main group, they immediately think it's a competition when it's not. Exactly. And then on top of that, in 1963, in general, 
it was just full of drama for the UIA because they were organizing their seventh Congress, which was to take place in Havana. And who can tell me who might have a problem with that? Ay, ay, ay. Clap once for the U.S. Mm-hmm. There was a little something called the Cold War going on. And the U.S. was like, um, no way, no how are we going to Havana. And neither should you. So <laughs> they were lobbying to move the whole thing somewhere else. But the U.A. was like, uh, no, we are above political problems. We are about camaraderie, and U.S. architects should have no beef with Cuba architects. Peace and love, groovy. It's the 60s, y'all. <laughs> okay. These are like French hippies. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, I'm imagining them as hippies now, and I don't know if that was really how it was, but... <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, it all sounds like a front to me. <sighs> Yeah, so the UIA was dealing with that, and they were like, I don't want to deal with rebellious ladies, too. Some members saw no point in having a Congress of International Women Architects separate from a Congress of International Architects mm -hmm. because the UIA was meant to represent everyone, all genders, races, socioeconomical situations, nationality, education, religion. So... There was no need to have another specific Congress. But even though their intention was to be all-inclusive, the reality was different. I mean, the majority of the members were from a certain group. The hierarchy, the locations where they hosted the events, it was not very diverse. It did not represent and encompass everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. These groups are meant to be that way, right? And that's... That's what they're trying to do or what they say they're trying to do. But in practice, obviously, it's still majority white men, which will change how things are run and interpreted. And so that's why having a separate group for women or other underrepresented groups so that they can have a space to voice their struggles and opinions is so important. I mean, I don't have to tell you ladies, but, you know, I mean, yeah, it's both groups are important, right? One doesn't negate the other, I guess. Exactly. I agree. Yeah, and I think what makes this frustrating is that, like you said, that wasn't their intention. But the fact that they don't even realize it until afterwards. And they don't really make an effort at the beginning to, like, I don't know, improve or be a little bit more intentional. I don't know. It's just... <sighs> sigh. Yeah. I can't fault them from what they don't know. But, like, right. once it's shown to them and... Mm -hmm people refuse to do anything about it, that's when I can exactly. start to put some fault. Yeah. But anyway. Even though the UIA did not attend the Congress of International Women Architects or show a lot of support for the UIFA, by the time that they held their eighth Congress, the UIA, they discussed for the first time the issue of women representation within their organization. Eighth times the charm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah, I would say that the UIFA definitely had an impact within the UIA, whether the UIA wished to admit it or not. That's right. Mm -hmm. Apparently, from those discussions, they found three different trains of thought among the women members. 
One group thought that in the profession, all genders were equal, had the same exact rights, opportunities, issues, and that creating a separate meeting to discuss issues of women kind of made no sense and caused more harm than good. I mean, we've definitely heard that sentiment from some of our ladies in the past, right? Yep. Don't single me out as a woman because we're all just architects. Mm-hmm. Right. The second group thought even though there was equality between women and men in the profession, in theory, in practice, there was discrimination towards women. And the way to fix this was to unite and create a group that would defend their interests, such as the UIFA. Agreed. I would like to see how they defined or spelled out equality at that time, because I doubt that there was. Like, where was the ocular proof? I want to see salary comparisons, distribution of work, leadership, and employee demographics. Like, prove it. Prove it. Well, I think that's the point, is that in theory it was, but in practice it wasn't. Yes, but I want to see it in practice, too. I want reports. Ocular proof. Well, there was a third camp. There was a third camp that believed that there was discrimination towards women and architects. And the best, fastest way was to address it through the UIA, which was a large organization, than through a smaller organization composed of only women. Mm. Mm. That's interesting because I can see their point, right? And even today, there's a lot of talk about the fact that while I do still think smaller groups like the UIFA for women are important for women to have a safe space to be heard, unless the larger groups like the UIA are on board with making changes, or if we're not making sure that white men in power are understanding that changes need to be made, I can see their point that it would be an effective way to create change through the larger group if they can get those people on board, right? Because unless those people are on board, Mm -hmm. real change won't happen or it won't happen as quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, totally. I've heard and have been a part of some of those conversations at the AIA, so the American Institute of Architects, and they're having these exact same conversations. So it's interesting to see another group have similar conversations too. Yeah. Yeah, it's been going on for decades. 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 (laughs) And still no change. Slight, small steps, but still no change, might we add. I mean, there's changes, but there's still a lot, lot, lots more to do. Exactly. Yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, despite any drama in the beginning, the UIFA kept going and eventually ties between the UIA grew. And today, the UIFA is under the umbrella of the UIA. Good. I'm glad that they were able to make it work. Solange wasn't just starting organizations and being an all-around activist and change maker. That alone would not pay the bills. The lady had to work. According to a variety of sources, she designed more than 5,000 apartment units, public and cultural buildings, sports arenas, elementary schools, nurseries, hospitals, and urban planning for new towns. Mm. Yet, to my greatest sorrow, Mm. I could not find any pictures of any of this, which makes me so, so, so sad. Mm. Sad. PSA. Listeners, document your work Mm -hmm. because you never know who you can inspire in the future. Who wants to learn from you? Your legacy is important and we need to see it. Yes. 
Also, whoa, that's a lot of projects. Yeah. And I'm really sad that we don't get to see any of them. Not one. So you're telling me that we have another Julia Morgan on our hands? <laughs> Oi. Ay, ay, ay. You know what? Maybe Solange's work is actually well-documented in legit places like libraries right. or institutions, mm. but just not super easily accessible like a simple Google search like I wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I just wish that her work was a little easier to see. Yes. Yes. If any listeners know where to find it, let us know. Mm-hmm. Please, yes. In 1965, Solange received the title Chevalier by the National Order of Merit. The French National Order of Merit was created on December 3rd, 1963 by the President of the French Republic, General Charles de Gaulle. The title of Chevalier is awarded to women and men for distinguished merits rendered to the French Republic over the course of a career of at least 10 years. Ooh, exciting. Charles de Gaulle, the namesake of the airport in France. That's all I got. That's all I remembered. (laughs) The name of the airport. (laughs) You know, it sounds similar to the Order of the British Empire yes. to me, but like the French version. Mm-hmm. That's, I took French for three years in high school, so that's all I know. Sounds like it. <laughs> then she received the title of Officer from the Legion of Honor in 1981. Mm-hmm. From what I understood... This happens after at least eight years after being a chevalier and still kicking ass and taking names. Mm. And then they're like, oh, you're still doing amazing work and contributions? We got to step up your rank. Level up, level up. Level up, level up. Five years after, in 1986, she received the honorary fellowship from the American Institute of Architects. Ooh, c'est magnifique. The International Archive of Women in Architecture, IAWA, the great center started by Milka Bliznakov, which we discuss on episode one of Sheepo's podcast, hosted the 18th Congress of the UIFA in 2015. Cool. Mm. Loving this crossover. Yes, it's kind of like a full circle moment. Beautiful. Yeah. Solange still lives in Paris. I found an address to her firm on Yelp. (laughs) Though at 99 years old, I would assume that she's retired doing what Romanian French retired ladies do. But who knows? (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. knowing our ladies, that woman is not playing bingo. But hopefully, she has lots of great architects continuing to do the work at her firm. Yeah, that's right. There's no way that Solange is just chilling. But I'm sure we could probably find her just like strolling down Les Champs-Élysées oh. or something. That would be nice. I would hope, but probably not. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> that lady's really cool. I really liked her story because I just think about the work that we're doing and what we aspire to do. It reminds me of the work that she does or that she did with the organizations and how she's so uh, so resilient in her convictions and what's right. So what she was able to start and how it continues today. This is a good reminder of that. And especially I hope that the people that we know 
that are a part of the organizations that we've talked about this episode, that they listen to this story and they keep up the good fight and the work that they're doing. So this is a good one. Yay! Yay. I'm glad. Okay, now it's time for our karyotid. A karyotid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. In each episode, we present a karyotid, a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through their work, and who ties into the historical women of our episode. Drum roll, please. <laughs> Sara Topelson de Greenberg. Sara Topelson is a listener suggestion karyotid. We need to thank Juliana Retana very much for sending us a message about Sara. Okay, Sara is an architect. She was born in Poland, but her parents fled during the Nazi regime and landed in Mexico when Sara was three months old. Mm. Yay, another listener suggestion. I love that this episode is fully from suggestions. Yay. Also, shout out to Juliana. Hey, girl, hey. Sara has degrees in architecture, architectural history, architectural theory, and art history from top colleges in Mexico, including UNAM. Together with her husband, who is also an architect, she runs the firm Greenberg and Topelson Architects. They've designed a large variety of projects from residential to commercial to educational to cultural. The list goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Very impressive. And power couple alert. <laughs> yes. Cute. Also, shout out to UNAM, which we've talked about on this show, especially when we talk about Mexican architects. So, hey. She is a professor of history of art, architecture, and urban planning. Now, interestingly enough, I learned about Solange Derbert de la Tour through Sara Topelson. A few years ago, I attended a panel and Sarah spoke about Solange and the International Union of Female Architects. And ever since then, I've wanted to share their stories, but I haven't had the opportunity until today. Mm. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't realize that's how you learned about Solange. Such a cool turn of events. Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. I love this connection. Learning about a future lady from a, a character. Kip. Mm-hmm. I believe that Sara was also a member of the UIFA. I think I remember her saying that during the panel discussion. I know for sure that Sara is a member of the UIA. She became a council member the year the three of us were born. <laughs> <laughs> so fun fact, if any of you out there know when that is. <laughs> she was vice president from 1993 to 1996. And that year, she became the first woman to be president of the UIA, a position that she held until 1999. Excellent. Way to go, Sara. Yes, that's amazing. And we're also going to ignore the fact that it wasn't until 1999 that a woman would be president. But still, that is very awesome. <laughs> Sarah has done so many things, received so many accolades. She is a living legend herself. Yeah, she mm -hmm. is. Before we say goodbye, we want to say thank you to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer, and most of all, muchas gracias to all of you for listening. We also want to give a special shout out to the International Archive of Women in Architecture and 
Paula de Deca for all the work that they share about Solange and the UIFA. Remember to check out our show notes for links to all of our resources on this episode, as well as pictures of projects that we've talked about. We hope you enjoyed learning about Solange and Sara along with our banter and that you are inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, gracias. She Builds Podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your French friends, tell your organization of women architects or other professional women organizations. Tell them all. Give us five stars on iTunes and Spotify and write us a review. This will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebospodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website at shebospodcast.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebospodcast and on X at shebospod. Until then, hasta luego. Au revoir. Bye. Don't stop, can't get enough. Ooh, don't stop, can't get enough. Keep on. Uh, also, those are not the lyrics, Jessica. <laughs> oh, I don't know. She's changing them. <laughs> all, all the time. <laughs> don't stop till you get enough. Oh, uh, whatever. Same thing. Don't stop till you get enough. I think, right? <laughs> all right. Come on. Yes, I, it is. Lizzie's right. I don't know. I don't really know a lot of... Okay. Um, anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Of course. <laughs> You got the idea, though. You knew who we were talking about. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh, yeah, we're doing this. I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. 
oh one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.